Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And on our journey through Patrick O'Brien's fantastic Aubrey Maturin novels, we are at Chapter 7 of Treason's Harbour. So, Mike, can you help us locate ourselves? Where were we last week? Where might we find ourselves this week? You bet, Ian. So last week, the surprises had marched quickly across the desert to avoid the ghouls. Jack's chilink went missing and was later found in the now-dead shark-eaten Harabedians things. They convinced the Turks to move quickly to sail on the Niobe. They survived a sandstorm at sea, found and sunk the galley, and then realized they'd been tricked. There was no treasure aboard. They narrowly avoided being shot out of the water by a new French battery when they were chasing that galley. And because of the new batteries, were unable to even attempt to take Mubara. So not, not a great ending for our mission out here. This week, we've kind of finished with Mubara. We've got to return to Suez on the Niobe. Um, Jack will have to say goodbye to the Bimbashi and Hassan. And then last time when he was in Suez, the Egyptian governor was gone, but he had had a lieutenant governor that was such a pain. Well, now the governor is back. The Niobe will leave us. Stephen will start gathering intelligence again through a new friend, a new contact. The surprises will set off to march back across the desert to Tina to reboard the dromedary and return back to Malta. What could possibly go wrong? So, Mike, they'd endured and overcome adverse winds and sandstorms on the way out, and all of their seamanship and all of their their bold conduct had paid off. But now it looks like the weather and the conditions are just going to give them setback after setback. Things aren't getting better for them as the Niobe returns to Suez. Those northerly breezes are back with us again. They get slowed right down by these contrary winds. They're tacking several times each watch. And remember, this is a really narrow waterway, so that's really back-breaking, slow going. They sometimes miss stays. They don't manage to get the boat round through the tack because they have a dirty bottom, because they're missing copper, because they're grounded in the mad chase, if we remember down the Gulf of Suez in the last chapter. I like this tactic that they use, Mike, to discourage people from over-drinking. <laughs> They're short of water, so you're only allowed to suck water up from the scuttlebutt through a dismounted musket barrel, and they place this this barrel in the main top. <laughs> so there's a, there's a double uh, disincentive to anybody who feels motivated to drink. You've got to climb to the main top, and then you've got to do the thing with the musket barrel. The surprises, I think, are all pretty okay with this. The Turks, though, are not happy. Before they stop to pick up water ashore, the usually humid air turns dry and the crew get these really horrific sunburns. And the text says, watering was therefore painful as well as slow. And while it was running its tedious course, the Bimbashi, who had never forgiven Jack for being misled, very carefully and at great length showed him the scene of another of the Royal Navy's failures, the little five-gun fort defending Corsair Roads, which had been bombarded by two 32-gun frigates, Daedalus and Fox, for two days and a night when it was in the hands of the French. And Mike, the Bimbashi is kind of laying it on here, pointing to this particular rather differently enterprising British mission. He says, they fired 6,000 rounds, said the Bimbashi, writing it down, so there should be no mistake, 6,000 rounds, 
and they failed to take the port and their attack was repelled with the loss of a gun and a great many casualties. And Mike, we get this wonderful uh, studied effort at politeness via the interpreter back from Jack. Pray tell the Bimbashi, says Jack, how deeply I am obliged to him for this information and how highly I value it as an example of his politeness. This had to pass through Hassan, a man of delicate breeding who had been uneasy throughout the Bimbashi's account and now looked uneasier still. So Jack and the Bimbashi, Mike, at this point, I think not really seeing eye to eye. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, the Bimbashi who had kind of been, you know, Mr. Cool on the, I'm not in it for the money, but it, you know, when Jack had originally talked about there'd be 5,000 purses aboard and then wrote it down, 5,000. And I think the Bimbashi's pretty PO that there were no purses aboard. And so he's saying, you know, here's where they fired 6,000 rounds and race it down. It's kind of like back at you here. Oh, and, and your your point too, Ian, about how Hassan translating this, trying to be a polite guy and, you know, a man of delicate breeding with these two guys, obviously sort of, you know, circling each other verbally here. Right. And O'Brien gives us all of this in a few short sentences and, the, and there's humor and this kind of dry sarcasm behind it. It's really great. Um, this story about the fort at El Kassir, Mike, we think that's, we think that's real. Oh, it, it actually was real. It's, it's fascinating. El Kassir, and Kassir is kind of written differently, Arabic and O'Brien's English here, but both of them mean the short. Now, in Arabic, it's the town and this fort, real fort, uh, were named that way because this was the port that if you were in Egypt and you wanted to go on the Hajj, on the, on the annual journey to Mecca, you would come through this port, leave your camels and horses at the castle there and and take a ship to Mecca. And it was actually the most important port on the Red Sea for Egypt, you know, for their spice trade, kind of uh, a conduit to Europe. And the French under this character, Napoleon, we've heard about him in the canon, had come in 1799 with a military expedition, seized this fort, kind of added to it, left cannons and 100 soldiers. And in August, right after Napoleon had been there and built it up, uh, British went after it. They sent this Daedalus and Fox 32-gun frigates. Yep. And, and in fact, history records an estimated 6,000 cannonballs fired at this small, you know, like five-gun fort here. And and then they retreated. They, they had, you know, kind of left some pretty big holes in this thing, but they tried to go ashore a couple times. They lost a cannon in the surf, but the the individual cannon fire and musket fire kind of chased them back each time. So it was, it was a big defeat. However, shortly thereafter, in, in 1801, in June, uh, 6,000 British and Indian soldiers uh, came after this thing, took this fort, then marched across the desert and had one of the biggest battles that that turned the tide in in kind of the the battle with Egypt there. So later too, it was interesting in in 1816, a character by the name of Ali Pasha <laughs> used this. Oh, as him again? Base. Yeah, it was his base for his wars against Arabia here. So I think once again, O'Brien just sort of drops this little thing in, but it really does figure well now. 
fingers crossed. So here we've got kind of a loss here that's being referenced in history. Uh, there was a loss, but not long after there was some good news for our heroes. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Maybe maybe this is part of O'Brien's long game to point us towards some good news going forward. Oh, we've got to hope so. We've got to hope so because they're in a bit of a low ebb at the minute. And Mike, it's funny. I was reading this thinking, oh, fr- frigate-sized British boats doing enterprising things on detached duty in the Eastern Mediterranean. Where's Where's Cochrane? He must be here somewhere, <laughs> but he's not here, right? This wasn't a Cochrane story. This was This was another episode altogether. Right, right. And we we only have Cochrane stories when he's winning, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Not great connections with the Bimbashi and the other Egyptians. Even our friend Hassan seems to be cold. He he disembarks at Suez. And Jack really doesn't understand. You know, Jack is a, a is a bluff, more or less, speak how you find, sailoring kind of a guy. And he can't really understand why Hassan is really giving him the cold shoulder. And I love Stephen's ability to delicately explain that Hassan believes Jack would have come down on Hassan for the 750 purses that Hassan had promised Jack if they raised the sails and caught the galley. And in this really perverse, but I think very human reaction, since Hassan couldn't pay because Jack wasn't calling for the money. He thought that Jack was scorning him. And Jack, of course, n- never agreed to any of that, didn't feel himself in any way entitled to call for 750 purses from Hassan, but still misunderstands the fact that Hassan is, is PO'd at him. And Mike, this is this is very, very human, isn't it? People responding to each other, not for remotely rational or kind of connected ways, but just because they're irritated to have been made to feel bad. Right, right. The fact that, that I'm going to have to Welsh on this agreement means I'm mad at you. And and I, I love how O'Brien does this. It's, you know, Hassan's a very minor character. I, we won't talk about whether we see him again, but he's just kind of on stage, off stage. But even here, we get these really nice little insights into human behavior and the human condition and the way we interact with each other. Oh, it's great, isn't it? And we, we get another interesting secondary character, as uh, Hassan did, in fact, introduce Stephen to a physician, a French-speaking Coptic physician who's well-connected to the area's Greek and Armenian merchants as a as somebody who can translate and who knows about sources of information. And through the conversations with this physician, Stephen learned that the French were well aware of the British mission. The French had hired Abyssinian Christians to row the treasure up during Ramadan, so they didn't rely on Muslims. They had spread additional treasure rumors to entice the Naibi to lead her into that narrow inlet. The narrow inlet that the galley rowed past and the rowing past was one of the sort of triggers at the back of Jack's mind to go, hang on a minute, why have they Why have they been so easily dissuaded from going into that inlet? And thereby, the, the idea was that the French would have trapped the Naibi in the narrow inlet under the fire of the batteries, forcing them to abandon the galley and that the French could then have captured or destroyed the Naibi. And as often we're learning about all of this adverse intelligence and all these adverse circumstances after the event and the extent of the betrayal and the and the failure of intelligence becomes revealed to Stephen and Jack bit by bit and they can't do anything about it. Jack's wondering what the Turks had told the Egyptian governor so far about the mission's success or or the lack of it. One of the governor's people had been trying to open a sealed box. The governor's pressing to be invited on board, and it just seems like they really want to get their noses in and find out what was going on and who knew what and where was the intelligence. 
Stephen believed that he was told the mission had failed, but all the people had suspected that the bell had been taken for financial gain and that perhaps the failure story wasn't true or maybe some other treasure had been taken or maybe Jack had used the bell to get pearls. And Mike, again, this is very human, isn't it? Everybody's willing to believe something slightly bad and nefarious about somebody else. Well, and, and especially in this region, as we've seen, not that this region is any different from anywhere else, but it's all the, everybody's so used to double dealing it, at this time in this place. So it's like, yeah, yeah, we are, they're, they're telling us this, but I suspect it's something else. So boy, you always have to be looking over your shoulder here. Right. And and as Jack discovered in the previous chapter, you, you can be virtuous and magnanimous, but you might not get credit for it because people will believe that you were doing the virtuous thing for, for ignominious reasons. That's right. Exactly right. So poor, poor old Jack and his honor fixation. He's not going to have a fun time out in this environment, is he? No. Well, and it's it's funny. You know, the, the physician tells them through Stephen, don't trust the governor. And, and Stephen passes this on to Jack. And Jack says, well, you know, the governor's troops are all away at the time. So he doesn't have any troops. He doesn't have any teeth. I'm not worried about him. And, you know, we were talking earlier. It's kind of like... Come on, Jack. <laughs> Let's pay attention. <laughs> You're already learning that there's more than just the straightforward, right in front of your face, military consideration. There are all these other human and political and uh, and kind of indirect considerations. Right. So Jack and Stephen, meanwhile, to put them back in context, it's nice. O'Brien reminds us that they're sitting looking down on Stephen's camels and on the dismantled bell, the two means of transport that have been only partly partly useful so far. They also are sitting looking down on Stephen and Martin's boxes of specimens, and they're looking down on their shipmates, on the surprises in the courtyard below. And, Mike, there's a hark back all the way to post-captain here because we get some bear action. This time, not, not a bear suit, not a bear costume, but an actual bear. Awkward Davis is bargaining to buy a bear cub. So Jack's looking forward, while all this is going on, Jack says he's looking forward to the camels promised by the governor for dawn tomorrow so they can march back to Tina. And the only thing worrying Jack then, he says, is the writing of his official letter once they get on the dromedary. He says he hates official letters, rather be flogged round the fleet, he says, than write this particular one, reporting total failure and basically no good news. So... He feels better when the physician, Dr. Simica, I think this is our Coptic physician, visits Jack and Stephen, bringing a basket of fresh cat, especially for Stephen. I have a feeling Jack's not going to indulge. <laughs> and they talk about a whole new set of topics. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, Dr. Simica comes in and, and we won't go through all of them, but they, you know, they say they talk about European politics, ophthalmia, Lady Hester Stanhope, and Egyptian adultery, fornication, and pederasty. Um, you know, they point out that Sodom is only a few days' march away, but they're talking about this adultery and fornication, etc., as O'Brien writes, in their less tragic aspects. And <laughs> O'Brien writes that the, the physician was so droll in the way he talked about it 
so intensely amused that although Jack did not follow a great deal of what he said and often had to have the point explained, he spent a very pleasant evening laughing much of the time. So <laughs> leave it leave it to O'Brien, this set of topics that uh, and, and Jack's sense of mirth that 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 we could uh, get away with this here. And, and it's interesting. Once again, we've got these little uh, Easter eggs, if you will, these little corners of the rugs that we can peel back and look under. And the one that I found particularly interesting was this Lady Hester Stanhope. It was like, wait a minute. So this is what this Coptic physician wants to talk about. Who is she? Yeah. And and we find that she was, in fact, an actual character from history, right? Yeah. So. Lady Hester Stanhope, you know, and I love this to uh, to all of our listeners out there, but particularly to our our heroes, the women who love the canon. You know, I think this is an O'Brien yeah. nod to say, yes, I'm writing accurately about this period, and I'm going to make women as complex and as interesting and as wonderful as they are by pointing out examples that even in this time, what was possible. So Lady Hester Stanhope, kind of born into a very powerful political family here. Uh, Her uncle, uh, William Pitt the Younger, I believe, was prime minister. Uh, She lived at Walmer Castle with him and in London from 1803 until his death in 1806. And she was, you know, kind of in the midst of that, she was his hostess because he was unmarried. And, you know, she was a center of society. She's mixing with politicians. We've got the Napoleonic Wars. So she's uh, also, you know, history records that she was very interactive with the military and naval men at the time. She loved this kind of excitement, the potential crisis. And she actually liked male company in preference to female company because she found that men shared her interest and were more receptive to you know what history records as her keen wit and forthright opinions and you know as i'm i'm reading all through this i'm thinking hmm anybody we know in the canon like this let's see any female characters Ooh. and you know, like, <laughs> oh yeah so she's very tall for the age you know she's almost 6 feet tall she's a very colorful figure you know, we have this incredible impression she makes on all these soldiers who write about her. They actually call her the mm. Amazon. Um, and then her her uncle is, is later out of power. And, and she's kind of, on the one hand, has lost some of, uh, you know, what's going on there. But she's still well-placed in society. But she does not like the restrictions of polite English society. So she decides, I'm going to head to the Middle East. And she just packs everything and moves off. There's a shipwreck. She loses all of her clothing and she just decides to start dressing like a man for convenience sake. She is still very much, you know, a very active and everything. The Bedouins write about her incredible horsemanship. She uh, eventually settles in Lebanon. She's kind of a very influential figure in the region and she has all of these things where she's defying conventions, both in Western and Eastern society. You know, she had done this in England. She did it all around the Middle East there. Uh, she, for example, shaved her head and wore a turban for convenience. Uh, and she would go unveiled, even, you know, even going and, and, and living and visiting and working in Constantinople, kind of the pillar of Muslim society. She didn't wear a veil. So I don't know. Um, Netflix first, you need to do the canon. 
But somebody needs to jump on this story as well. What what a fascinating woman, Lady Hester Stanhope. Yeah, and and taking her herself and her her point of view and her role as, as an internationally well travelled, very capable woman to all these interesting corners of the world. So as well as talking about Lady Hester Stanhope, who sounds like she's worth a good 90 minutes of anyone's conversation, we had been talking earlier on, of course, about uh, about fornication as well. And also we'd been talking about camels. And there had been this just little odd exchange between Doctor and Jack and Stephen about camels. So I want to get back to this, this conversation that's going on involving Dr. Smiker and Stephen and Jack. Um, the Doctor's still there when the governor's secretary comes along saying that Jack ought to delay, um, leaving a confusing message. And the confusion's clarified a little by the doctor who says the governor had hoped to provide guards to accompany Jack and the rest of them back across the desert, but couldn't get them. He wants to send word to Tina and bring back Turkish soldiers to accompany Jack. And that's going to be a 10-day delay. Jack says, we know the way, we don't need an escort. The secretary asks Jack if he's willing to take full responsibility if anything happens in the desert. And there's this very deliberate scenario kind of played out. If, for example, one of his men were bitten by a camel or if thieves picked his pockets at one of the wells, the secretary asks, will you still be um, okay? And Jack says, that's fine. Let's stick with the agreed plan, camels at dawn, and wonders after the secretary leaves if he'll ever see those camels. And Dr. Samaika says... Perhaps you may, with a very significant look. And Mike, we're just given a moment. We're just given a moment to wonder what we're supposed to doubt, given this significant look and given all of the things we've just talked about. What are we supposed to doubt? But we haven't really got time to dwell on that because the purser comes in. There's a fight broken out between Awkward Davis and the bear. <laughs> and it turns out that, guess which protagonist in that fight, Stephen's going to go and help out. He's going to go and fix the bear. Right. <laughs> Never mind Awkward Davis. Yeah, it is amazing. And, and I guess just as the doctor is about to explain his look, you know, all this chaos breaks out and, and the doctor takes his leave. Well, as, as you know, they're tending to all that. Jack says, you know, I've got it. The Niobe is getting ready to sail. I've got to go um, say goodbye to them. But they're in an inn with this great big central courtyard that they've been looking down on. And as Jack goes out to visit the Niobe, he gives orders that the gates to the inn are supposed to be closed because he does not want the purser to ask about liberty for the men. He's going, no, 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 we're leaving at dawn. I don't want to be running all over the brothels in town trying to round you up in the morning. Everybody stays in here. Lock the gates. Um, and and they do. They're, they're, they're going to lock them. They're guarded all night. And lo and behold, at dawn, the camels do appear. And O'Brien's describing the scene of the camels coming in through the gate. And all the surprises who had actually found a way to sneak out during the night and were drinking and carousing are all sneaking back in under the legs of the camels as they come through the gate. Um, they, they line up for inspection before he- getting ready to head out. And and they're reported all present and mostly sober by naval standards, meaning that, you know, the worst drunks managed to stand up through the inspection before falling over. So they threw them on the backs of these camels. They put all their supplies on 
And Killick is especially securing, as we know, all of Jack's valuables. He's, you know, hidden the chilling inside his chest. He's double wrapped it in sailcloth, stuck it on the first camel. And then they march out of town. And it, it's fascinating to me, Ian, how they would do this back on Malta. They would kind of line up as if they were in the ship for inspection. The same way, you know, O'Brien writes this scene, this departing of the city. Everybody all in there, you know, the the officers and the four castle men, the top the four top men, the main top men, the afterguard, the baggage train. You know, so we've got this procession headed out at dawn into the desert. Well, do you know what, Mike? The one thing I think they're going to need, especially if they've been out on the town the night before, they're going to need some refreshment with them. So why don't we take this as a moment for us and our listeners to grab a quick break and we'll come back refreshed and ready for the march across the desert. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lubbers hole. Welcome back. We're picking up the story with Jack and the surprises and Stephen all in marching order, heading off out into the desert on their way to Tina. As the sand gets softer and deeper, the column, it says, became a long, straggling line. Because these guys are not in great shape, and keeping to a a rigid field order is going to be a bit of a struggle for them. Martin comments on the drunken sailors being carried on camelback, and then starts to sort of muse on the role of riding and the, the pride of officers, especially officers in the Navy. He notes that in the Army officers ride and Stephen says so they do in the navy sometimes and an eminently comic spectacle it is on occasion but he says there is a tedious and i fear increasingly powerful sentiment that when something exceptionally arduous and disagreeable is to be done like walking over a hot shadowless desert then all hands must share alike ton for ton and man for man it seems to me foolish inconsistent ostentatious useless illogical a nice little Stephen stack of adjectives there. Useless, illogical. I've often represented to Captain Aubrey that no one expects him to join in cleaning the filth from the ship's heads, nor in many other vile offices, and that it is therefore mere froth and showing away spiritual pride, nay, downright sin, voluntarily to strut about the wilderness like this. And Martin is kind of going along with this, but he says, well, hold on a minute. Forgive me, but you're doing so yourself with camels of your own at hand. And Stephen's in no mood to be deflected from his uh, his little rant. He says, ah, that's only moral cowardice. My courage will increase as my ankles swell and my feet grow more blistered. And presently I shall silently mount my beast. And Martin's still not giving in. He's kind of going, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but he says, we rode you and I on the march down. And Stephen says, a completely different story, says Stephen. This was because they marched at night while it was known that we spent the day botanizing. We were also unperceived. So again, Mike, I think Stephen's very willing to be a bit gently mocking and sarcastic about all the sort of mores and preoccupations and hang-ups that the sailors have. And he finds it pretty easy to paint himself as the uh, as the truly logical, truly detached philosophical brain in the party. 
And it's so funny to me because Stephen, you know, the guy who is like, we shouldn't be lording it above each other. You know, pursers shouldn't be beating uh, enlisted men or people shouldn't kind of roundly, you know, give these orders just because of their rank. But on the other hand, rank has its privileges here. And and Stephen thinks, you know, it should. I love this. He's kind of an uneven egalitarian here. And and it's another one of our Brian's, you know, Stephen, like all his great characters are just shades of gray. They're not completely black or white here. And they're people. They're just people. Oh, I love it. It's great. I love that. Un- uneven egalitarian. I'm going to get a badge made out of that. I think that's great. <laughs> so the men who'd been out all night, and I think that's quite a few, the men who'd been out all night slowed the party down, but not as much as the men and officers, including the captain, who were, it says, as shamefast and bashful in their actions as they were licentious in their speech. And we learn exactly what it is that O'Brien means about shamefast and bashful in their actions. They don't want to be seen going to the bathroom. So they walk far off from the column to preserve their modesty while they answer the call and then rejoin the march. And on that first day, Mike, they only go 16 miles. As if all of this kind of discomfort and sort of slovenliness wasn't a signal that all is not well we get O'Brien's favorite signal that all is not well. We get a dangerous animal in sight. It says that they spotted their first Egyptian cobra, five foot nine inches long, gliding across the sand, head up and hood raised where they were to stop for the day. And Mike, this, this reminds me of all of the other sort of dangerous animal images that we get juxtaposed, I think really meant to make us feel uneasy. We had the praying mantis all the way back in Master and Commander. We had the sea snake in the sea aboard HMS Surprise on the way to Stephen's ill-fated encounter with Diana in India. Lots of others that I can think of as well. And here we have a cobra. Ah, how's it going to go the following day? You know, that's, that's what we really have to ask ourselves, right? So the next day, it, it starts off, it looks it's a, like a little better. They're marching over what O'Brien calls firm, stony sand. Um, and, and so they're doing much better. And they stop a little bit early. They've done so well. There's, there's kind of a ruined building and a well, a couple of palm trees, and kind of an area of fixed dunes around them. And Jack's thinking, you know, an, another hour or so marching isn't going to make that big deal. Let's just be comfortable. We'll camp here tonight. Because it's still early, they've got a little daylight. Stephen and Martin ask permission to go off botanizing on their camel. And, you know, Jack says, yeah, yeah, by all means, help yourself and, and clear out all the serpents while you're out there. And so they're out riding. And, and Martin kind of says to Stephen, you know, oh, how picturesque. There's a, a man riding a camel on an adjacent dune. But Stephen stops, looks over and kind of shades his eyes and gets a better look. And he sees not only more camels and more people, but horses. Stephen's kind of intelligence agent and, and knowledgeable person's brain goes into gear and he heads immediately back because he sees the surprises and they're coming dangerously close on the other side of that dune. So Stephen hurries down tells Jack that the Bedouins are just to the west of them and that they're switching from camels to horses, their attack mode. Um, Jack has them piped to quarters. We can't beat to quarters here, but we pipe to quarters. And they form the men into this square with fixed bayonets, uh, apparently do a really nice job. 
Jack sends Killick off to get his sword and pistol from the lead camel because he's got it up there in his kind of his pack. And he also tells Rowan and Honey to go tell the camels and the drivers to kind of get sheltered over by that building close by there. Um, and they just about got them rounded up. Killick is almost back when, sure enough, these horsemen appear over the top of the dune and start kind of gradually coming down a little closer and Jack orders everybody back in the square. And he writes exactly how it appeared to the surprises as these horsemen approached. He says, more horsemen gathered and then with a concerted shriek, they raced breakneck down the hill upon Rowan and Honey, easily catching them and cutting them off, enveloping them, but avoiding them by inches as they stood there. After a moment, they were past, riding furiously up the opposite slope, where they reined in so hard that their horses stopped dead. Here they poised for a long moment, all armed, either with swords or very long guns. Jack had seen many a fantasia on the Barbary coast, Arabs galloping full tilt at their chief and his guests, firing in the air, turning at the last moment, and as Rowan and Honey came gasping into the square, he said, Perhaps it is only their fun. No man is to fire until I give the word. And then, Mike, we wait to see if Jack's prediction is true. A man in a red cloak fires his gun and the uh, the riders race back down the dune. It says, firing and crying, illa, illa, illa. Jack tells the men it's a fantasia, orders them not to fire unless he gives the word. The riders come close to the square this time and they split in half. They go round them, crying and firing and flashing their swords. They come galloping closer again. Callum, he drops his pistol. The pistol flashes. Killick jumps as if he's been wounded and shouts, No, you don't, you bastard! But the riders head westward with the camels, flogged by their drivers, following them. The riders head westward with our guys' camels. Right. So they've been undone. They've been undone. The Bedouin have pulled off a Jack Aubrey approaching under deceptive colours manoeuvre perfectly. They weren't out to attack the men. They weren't out to attack the column. This wasn't a military operation. This was theft. And the big mistake that Jack and his shipmates had made, of course, was to sequester the camels over away from the square, whereas, in fact, it was the camels and the baggage that the Bedouin were after. And we discover that only two camels remained, one whose lead rope had broken and one that Killick had tackled to the ground. So, Mike, we've got Awkward Davis fighting a bear and now Killick tackling a camel. Right. <laughs> and, of course, Killick is absolutely chosen which hill he's going to die on here. He's he's tackled the camel that is carrying Jack's chest. Killick looks to be trampled, struck and kicked. He raises his bloody fist and says, I served the bugger out. They had lost everything. Everything except for Jack's chest and two large tents carried by another beast. So, Mike, they're pretty much done up here, aren't they? They're in the middle of the desert. They have nothing, including their provisions. Maybe this is why Dr. Simica had such a significant look when he and Jack had been talking about the camels earlier on. Yeah, you really do have to wonder in this whole, uh, you know, the, the governor's Clark saying, and so even if you get attacked at a well, that's, you know, and they pick your pocket, that's going to be okay with you. It's your responsibility, not ours. Yeah. I think Michael was trying to get across to him that uh, all, all was not well. Maybe the governor didn't have troops, but he still had teeth. <laughs> he had friends on the desert. So 
they were going to get after what they thought this treasure was one way or the other, or maybe even something more devious. Who knows here? Mm, wow, let's read on. But it's interesting, this, this example of the Fantasia, uh, this is a real thing. This is the, I guess, the Regency version of what is today still a, a popular cheesy tourist dinner show <laughs> entertainment. Uh, Mike, I know I've been to one of these in, uh, in the outskirts of Marrakesh. Um, it's the way that the Bedouin tribes like to entertain <laughs> entertain the people that they're about to rip off. Um, this idea of a fantasia of, often was actually part of celebrations and festivals, um, a little bit like jousting in a way, competing cavalry groups racing across a parade ground, finishing with coordinated firing of rifles in the air. And they were judged not only on speed, but by aesthetics, by the, the beauty of the group's overall performance, the horses, the riders, the guns, the swords, and all of that coordinated together. And tribes and villages would compete against each other. And these days, this is a celebration of Bedouin culture, um, but it's a celebration that goes all the way back to a custom that was for sure around at the time that uh, that we're reading about here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, really a- a- amazing to see too, and you can you can kind of understand how the surprises were all mesmerized watching this, only to find out that they did indeed have their pocket picked as they were distracted here. A great false flag. You would think all is lost here, as we said. You know, everything's there, but Jack steps up and decides. All right, we got to have a plan, and he decides they're going to march again by night. And he's thinking, all right, so we got to get water. Uh, well, we don't have, you know, we don't have any provisions, but we are at a well. It actually has some water in it. They take the sailcloth that Killick had wrapped around Jack's chest. And, uh, you know, the sailmaker fashions a bucket out of that. So they keep bringing up water from the well until every man and every camel cannot take another sip. Everybody's full. And uh, Jack says, well, Come, we shall do very well, shall we not, doctor? And Stephen replies, I believe we may, particularly those among us who breathe through their noses to prevent the dispersion of the moist humors who hold a small pebble in their mouths and who refrain from pissing and idle chat. The others may fall by the wayside. (laughs) Here's Stephen's prescription. As long as you do these things, you're okay. Otherwise, you're dished. And, and and just to you know to kind of emphasize the point as Stephen says this, you know, out of the darkness they hear uh, what O'Brien writes is a deep, strong voice from the dunes saying, "Woohoo, woohoo!" So we've got this old gins and ghouls and you know the voice of death. This thing that we we've been looking back in past chapters that Stephen, of course, is already associated with his eagle owl for us, but for the crew, oh no. Well, that certainly puts an end to the idle chatter. <laughs> Nobody listening to that. You know, they're all chilled, but there is some very earnest, quiet talking going on. And the bosun approaches Moet, who then comes to Jack, uh, you know, saying that the men would like the chaplain to ask a blessing on their march because they're going to say, you know, now that we've drunk everything we can, we're going to try to march straight through at night here. And, and certainly, says Jack, and, and I love this, he says, a bidding prayer in times like these is a damn sight. A- a great deal better, more decent, I mean, than most of your tediums. <laughs> right. Jack in naval form, realizing he's addressing with uh, with Martin, the reverend there. And, and Martin agrees, you know, he's going to do a short service. Um, you know, he does a little bit of the litany, 
has them join him in Psalm 60. And and O'Brien just, you know, puts the period there. And Jack says, ah, now surely we'll reach Tina and the Turks in fine trim. Ever the optimist. (laughs) Right, right. For an optimist, Psalm 60, probably not the one you would pick. But, um, you know, and you kind of wonder always, O'Brien could have said, just joined him in a psalm or something, but it's Psalm 60. You know, and, and this is fascinating. It's it's the psalm with the longest introduction. It kind of tells you the history behind what was going on here. And, and King David at the time was off battling an enemy of Israel. And while he's away battling, Another enemy, the Edomites, attack Israel successfully, and and David is just having this reaction, and the psalm is written in because of this reaction, kind of like, wait a minute, we're, you know, we're kind of off doing your work, and you allow our homeland to be attacked here. So the, the psalm kind of starts off saying, this horrible thing has happened. Why are you upset with us, God? Why did you let this happen? Please come help and save us. And then you've got a set of middle verses where God answers that you know, kind of in an interesting reference that he has all kinds of good things in store for the people of Israel. They'll all have good things to do. And he has really bad things in store for their enemies. He names all the countries and says, you know, kind of, and it, it's almost like their household chores. You have the good chores, they have the bad chores. They're, they're, they're going to get bad things to come. And, and the final set of verses are a, another plea for help. And, and kind of this thing saying, gee, please, we, we know that we can't count on men and armies of men. You know, we need you, God. Uh, humans can't save us. Only you can trample our enemies. So so I guess for Martin, that was the thing that, you know, you're with us. You're going to get rid of these ghouls and ghosties and things and, and, and we'll head on. And we'll just have to see if we reach Tina in fine trim. Yeah, and we won't take it for granted that our our, our earthly human skills and resources are going to be enough. <laughs> right, right, that's right. Well, we get a fast forward, and Mike, it it really strikes me about this whole chapter, and in fact, this whole book so far, that Jack and Stephen and the crew have been through all kinds of really quite mortal dangers. They've uh, faced sharks in the Red Sea. They've faced sandstorms and near grounding. They've faced bad weather. They've faced um, some action at sea as well. And now here they are facing starvation and dying of thirst across the desert. And in each of these cases, the danger is played out for us, but then passes by really quickly. So we don't get a long, drawn-out agony of the journey to Tina. We just discover that they did reach Tina, but clearly not in fine trim. Clearly, actually, right at the ragged edge of survival. There are vultures flying over them. They haven't eaten the camels because the camels were needed to carry so many of the men who we recall had started out the journey feeling the worst for wear anyway. They look, it says, less like a column and more like a dying mob. And there is one moment of real, oh my gosh, are they going to make it at last? Because as they approach the fort, we find out that the Turks have left the fort. It's locked. It's empty. And Jack really now has to just care about whether the dromedary is still there or whether she's given up and maybe been driven off by the storm. Maybe uh, there's been some kind of disruption between the Egyptians and the Turks. Maybe the dromedary's even been sunk and they can't see her in the distance. And Jack has to control himself, but ends up running where he gets the energy to run from. I can't think. Runs up the crest of the last hill 
to see the closer part of the bay. And Mike, as, as readers, you know, I think we we always probably knew that this was going to turn out okay. But we get this nice little rush of an emotional payoff. He stood there for a moment, savoring the immense relief that flooded into him. For there she lay, moored head and stern, quite close inshore, and her people scattered all about the bay in boats, fishing over the side. The the only thing he could have done to point this up a little bit more, I think, would have been to have it on Christmas Eve. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, it, you know, it's and speaking of Christmas Eve, you know, we kind of we remember situations like this before. You know, we're in the rowboat going out of Boston. There's the ship. Yeah. Oh wait, the ship's leaving, and 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 I think we kind of we get a replay of that a little bit here because. You know, the others see the joy on Jack's face. And like you say, you know, while they can barely walk, they kind of sprint up, you know, hobble as quickly as they can up the, the hill to join them. And not a single man among them has enough voice to holler to the boats. They have this very weak croaking. And, and so they're waving. And, you know, O'Brien's describing this. And the men in the boats, you know, occasionally a couple of them kind of wave back casually. Um, not much at all. They're really not taking any notice of them because I'm, I know this. You know, this is a disheveled mob having been through the desert. I'm sure they do not look like a company of, of, of ships officers and, and crew. And so Jack orders the men to fire a volley. Well, when they do, all of a sudden the nearest boat just like takes off for the ship very quickly. And then they're thinking, oh my gosh, now they think maybe we're like Egyptians or Turks kind of coming after them. Maybe they're meaning to head out to sea. But, writes O'Brien, it was only Mr. Allen, you know, the captain there, going back for his telescope. So, <laughs> so relief, relief for all hands. And again, we get straight we go we go straight past the reunion, we go straight past the let's get on board. We go straight into everybody being back aboard a dromedary and everybody being ready to head back in the direction of Malta. And the dromedaries, the crew of the dromedary that had been sitting there waiting, encounter their former and now reunited shipmates, the surprises. And we get this lovely, I think it's a very naval touch of humor. Nothing could more have endeared the dromedaries to the surprises than the cups of tea, the huge quantities of wine and water with lemon juice, and the food they lavished on them. So the surprises appreciate the food. Nothing, on the other hand, could have endeared the surprises to the dromedaries more than the appalling time they had had, their gratitude, and the failure of their mission. <laughs> as well as being funny and representing that kind of cantankerous, you know, subversive, I think, really naval humour, it's a really good observation about human nature. We, we esteem people who are worse off than us, who are going to make us look good. <laughs> yeah. You guys didn't come back here telling us about all the gold and silver your pockets were lined with, that we get none of it. You came back, failed, yeah. and we get to help you. Hey, that's not what we expected. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you. <laughs> right. So, and Mike, finally, finally, um, Jack earlier on had been lamenting the prospect of having to write the official letter. So as they were making good time, Heading for Malta, Jack tries out his official letter, a draft of his official letter on Stephen. Sir, I have the honour to acquaint you that pursuant to your orders of the third ultimo, which is fancy regency talk for the third of last month, 
Pursuant to your orders of the third Ultimo, I proceeded to Tina with the party under my command and from thence to Suez with a Turkish escort, where I embarked in the Honourable East India Company's sloop Niobe, having eventually taken the Turkish contingent aboard, proceeded in adverse weather to the Mubara Channel, where I made a complete cock of it. Now, says Jack, the point is, how can I best say that without looking too much of a fool? You really wonder. I mean, here is, like you said, Ian, all the horrific things they've gone through here. And Jack's writing this letter, which is essentially saying, you know, in all this beautiful, flowery language, and then trying to figure out another way to say it is, you know, I just screwed it up. I didn't get this right. How can I tell you? And, and, and I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, can, can you imagine, you know, back in our corporate lives nowadays, how people would write this up? Oh, these terrible things happened to me. It was so awful. I was triggered. I was, you know, I was you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like all this. Jack, you know, mentions none of that and is trying to say, how do I tell him I failed in my mission? Because that's what this is all about. And I thought, wow, this is this is it. And um, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to say what is gonna happen when he gets back to Malta here, right? How how is the commander in chief right. gonna take this news, right? Yeah, and, and what's going on with Ray, unless you were? There's there's Mrs. Fielding back in Malta, not under the direct protection of Stephen at the moment. Uh, we still don't know. When are we going to get word from home? Because we haven't heard from Sophie and Diana for a while. Are there going to be any joyful surprises in Chapter 8? Right. Well, I don't know. You know, I think I think the only way to find out is we're going to have to pull this Treason's Harbor right back off the shelf again next week. What do you say to next week a little bit more, Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. goodbye to them but i want you they're in this this uh caravan caravanseri caravan no idea mate anyways they're in this inn 